I can see the remnants of gorse here. What else would have fueled this fire? This is rank heather, very, very uh, degenerate. It's actually degenerate heather. It's, it's grown on. In April, a single point of ignition along the main road started a fire in Killarney National Park. Firefighters fought it for five days, ultimately containing the spread to 23 square kilometres of the park, being either totally burned or fire damaged. With the wind fully aligned behind it, 40 to 41, 42 kilometre an hour wind. Kieran Nugent works for the Forestry Service within the Department of Agriculture. This millennia grass uh, across a very large area. Would I have been able to outwalk that fire? You probably would have not outwalked it, but you would have been jogging. Maybe difficulty outrunning it. Yeah, yeah. You difficulty po- possibly outrunning would it. have just been. Yeah, I think if you've been ahead of this, you'd be concerned. Yeah, on the slopes, you would not have outrun this on the slopes. While it was a few things that combined to make this a catastrophic and almost uncontrollable fire none of them individually were particularly rare or unlikely. Warmer, wetter summers had seen more growth and therefore more fuel for the fire. A dry spring with drought conditions turned already winter senescent plants into a tinderbox. And strong easterly winds pushed the fire forward fast. In Killarney, the Air Corps is providing assistance to fire crews for a second day. Thousands of acres of land at the National Park have been destroyed Below them, teams of firefighters from Killarney, Killorglan, Kenmare, Sneem and McCroom in County Cork were left exhausted after battling the blazes for three days. The lads are absolutely nearly on their knees at this stage. Um, we have up to 3,000 wildfires a year. Most are small, but there are up to 150 a year, that's several fires a week, that stretch the fire and forestry service and the ones with the really destructive capacity are happening in areas right next to our towns and cities. Those types of what we call wildland urban interface fires are now, that's the new frontier essentially in Europe for for these types of fires. Where are our wildland urban interfaces then? Uh, Donegal will be the most critical one I think from from a fire point of view. And we've seen this uh, in 2019 and we saw this in 2011. We've had homes actually burned in Donegal. What about North Wicklow and South Dublin? The M50 is probably the biggest risk. Uh, And a worst case scenario is a smoke impact on the M50 corridor that would affect the operation of the road and that would would have uh, kind of downstream effects on traffic in and out of the city and, and onto the other connecting motorways. It's a ring road. So... How can you affect the most people in, in, you know, in the shortest possible route? That is, that is probably it. And now fire experts tell us that the Killarney fire and others like it are a warning that climate change means Ireland is going to have to start thinking and planning like a Mediterranean country when it comes to fire prevention. The simulations that we have done, it, it is very likely that the fire season is extended for Ireland and there are more fires There are more severe, there are consequences from those fires. And is it right that when we are trying to control emissions in every other area of life, that we would continue to burn ground for agriculture? And are you telling me that with confidence you can burn here and make sure that it doesn't spread beyond that? If you have the help and the conditions are right, there shouldn't be a problem.
I'm Philip Boucher-Hayes and this is Hot Mess, comparing Ireland's climate aspirations to its climate actions. Episode 4, Up in a Puff of Smoke. In the US, the question they ask is, how do you want your smoke? It's a really brutal question. How do you want your smoke? Do you want it in a way that you can predict, in a way that you can, you can turn it off if you have to? You can manage it. You can, you can predict the level of, of smoke, where it's going to go. You can plan it in a way that you know the wind is blowing in a certain direction. Or are you going to wait for the wildfire? Are you going to have an event that you can't control, you can't turn off? And it's going to be on a day that doesn't really suit you and isn't going to be of your, of, of, of your choosing. And th- these are the key questions that we now have to ask ourselves. And again, what we know from research in other countries is short-scale, very low-level burns that don't really impact into soil, don't impact into litter layers, and don't impact on larger uh, material, produce less smoke emissions than larger uh, wildfires of longer, longer endurance, longer, okay. longer out- outputs. Foresters and firefighters call this the fire paradox. To avoid a big one, you've got to start a lot of little ones. The more we prevent fires, the more successful we are in suppressing the fires that are intervened with, the larger the fires in future become. And that's a lesson that's been learned in Spain, it's been learned in California, it's been learned in other countries that have gone at fire really heavily from a suppression, from an exclusion point of view. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's basically a, a counterproductive effort that you have all, all of this money spent on new aircraft and fire services and, and all of these systems. And at the, at the end of it, your fires are simply getting bigger. And what are happening, what's happening is, over time, the fires are becoming un, unfightable. That even with the air support and fleets of air tankers, as the air tankers are operating, the, the water, the fires are simply too hot and the water is evaporating. Okay. So a problem solved in 2021 could very easily be an unsolvable problem in 2025. Yes, very easily. And I think the lessons from other countries that have, that have been, been here, and Spain is a very good example of this, is that they're now realising that this, this has to be dealt with at source. And if you want to manage fires, you have to manage the fuels. And if you have to manage fuels, you have to manage the fuels at, at landscape scale. OK, but the problem anybody listening to that is going to have is they're going to say, oh, come on, Kieran, Spain, what has that landscape got in common with where we're walking now in Killarney National Park? Fire is, is a reaction. It's a process. It doesn't recognise borders. It doesn't recognise differences between countries. There's literally the vegetation, the wind and uh, and the ignition. And, and their fires pretty much work the same, whether it's a million hectare fire or a million acre fire in Canada or 100 acres on fire in Galway. The processes behind the two are the same. Obviously, there is little about Ireland's weather that is Mediterranean. But the conclusion of scientists looking at our wildfires is that the closer we get to two degrees temperature rise, the more like those in northern Spain or Portugal, Irish fires will become. Extreme events will be more frequent. We may have periods of heavy rainfall and continuous rain periods, and then we'll go to another extreme where we have drought, And it's a kind of a vicious cycle as far as wildfires are concerned because 
more rainfall means more growth, more growth means more fuel, more drought then means bigger fires. Yes, that's it. Dr. Nuria Pratt-Kitart completed her PhD looking at Irish wildfires in UCD before returning to her native Spain. The conclusions that she drew from her work computer modelling future wildfires in Ireland is we need to make them a much greater priority. The simulations that we have done, what they are telling us is um, Ireland is going to have longer drought periods and warmer summers. It, it is very likely that the fire season is extended for Ireland and there are more fires, there are more severe fires that are going to occur, will be more intense. We are looking at faster fires, fires that also burn peat soils and cause larger emergencies. Do you think that Ireland needs to become a little bit more Mediterranean in its thinking or think of itself now in the future as having a landscape that's more like the ones that we would see in northern Spain and Portugal uh, than we have thought about before now? What I would say is that um, in Spain we have had fires for, or or we have been dealing with fires for uh, many decades. Um, and there are certainly lessons of things that we did wrong, uh, things that work for us, things that can be best practices for other countries. And I think it's definitely interesting to learn from each other and see how um, Ireland and other countries that in now and in the future are going to increase the um, uh, wildfire activity, that they learn or they are able to use what we have learned in southern countries, um, just to make sure we are uh, using that knowledge not to repeat the same mistakes. Do you think that while you were here, we were even beginning to contemplate uh, how potentially damaging wildfires are, or were we really just focused on uh, flooding? Yeah, unfortunately, this is something that... um, Every country repeats. We don't realize uh, about the problem until we have it, even if the forecasts and the projections are telling this is going to become a big challenge uh, for us. As humans, we are more reactive than proactive. We need to see some fires um, to realize that's becoming a, a problem in our countries. How significant a contribution do wildfires make to our carbon emissions? 3,000 fires a year and a policy of lighting controlled fires to clear land for animal grazing must all add up to something significant enough. But we don't know what it's costing us in emissions because we've never asked. How are you? Donny Anderson farms sheep in what feels like an isolated part of the Wicklow Mountains, but that's not what he calls them. We're in... Nearly Wicklow, but we're in the Dublin hills. As I said, there's no hill in Dublin high enough to be classed as a mountain. So we're just another half mile up the road and you're back into Wicklow. The surprising thing about it, though, is just how close you are then to Tala and to one of the most densely populated parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to believe that our address is Dublin 24. Really, is Tala, Dublin 24, yeah. 
Dhoni sees the occasionally tinder-dry heather and gorse on his land as a potential threat to Dublin, particularly if a fire was to get down into the peat, which it does do from time to time. Well, I think it probably does because if it's not managed, you know, if it's let go into a wilderness, who's to stop? What's to stop a fire starting? Like, There's nobody there 24-7 to stop a fire. And sure, people don't know exactly how some fires start. And I know if I, I walked down there the other day and there's a big a piece of glass, real thick piece of glass, and I just said to myself, I wonder would that be one of the pieces that could actually ignite, you know, in a, in a real sunny day because it was thick glass. He and his neighbours manage the land with fire. Controlled and licensed by the National Parks and Wildlife Service, they burn mosaic-like patches of four- or five-year-old heather to generate growth underneath for their sheep and to prevent the risk of a bigger fire. Probably every year or every couple of years when it needs to be burned. So that'd be only a small area, so it never got too big. And then the next year, maybe they burn a separate area because they needed to burn a little bit to keep, to keep grass coming and that. And, you know, there, there actually needed to be um, a bit of regrowth there all the time. That, this is a bit of a mystery to me. How do you control a fire? Well, the modern way, like there's modern ways of doing it with beaters and different things like that. But when you're around the place all the time and you judge the wind and all, and like there's certain natural barriers there to stop the fire as well, where you have things like brooks and streams and all that the fire won't cross. So if you just, if the fire starts and it's burning against the wind, it most likely won't spread too far. Do you know, so then, and then there's patches of rushes and things that won't actually burn. The biggest trouble is when it burns when it's too dry. If it's burned, like, when it's not actually too dry and you don't burn right down into the roots and you don't burn the, um, you don't actually burn the soil, it just kind of, even though some people might think it's not as good a burn, but it's actually probably better because it's not burning away the, and it's probably not killing the things underneath as well because it doesn't get over hot. And can you burn in the wet winter months then? Or do you have to wait until it's a bit dry? It's very hard to get it to burn in the winter unless you had an exceptional, like inside the to- burning time. Like February this year was a wet month and probably some of January mightn't have been too bad but February when you could possibly burn wasn't dry enough to burn. So there was no burning done, and then the first few days in March came fairly good, but that was gone out of season. So it just, um, I think you just have to be there to manage and see the weather and judge the weather. Like, not every day is going to be suitable, and you'll know if it's too windy, there's no, it's too dangerous to burn. Why does it matter to sheep farmers that you're able to control the land in that way? If we want to keep doing what we have been doing for what generations have been doing before us, to manage to keep a few sheep on the hills um, that they need a bit of fresh growth. They won't, the sheep and even the deer won't live in the high heather. Like there's some heather over there now and it's gone up nearly two foot tall. And if you look at it, there's no stock in it because there's nothing really for them there. Because down below, at ground level, there's no grass growing there's in underneath that there. heather. Yeah, yeah. And when the heather gets too big, they don't even eat it either. Because it's too woody. Yeah, it's woody, exactly. And that's what we'll burden. It's a tricky balancing act. If you don't burn, are you going to push deer down out of the hills in search of food, run the risk of an eventual fire that you can't control, and end the livelihoods of scores of hill farmers? If you do burn, 
Are you stopping the land from ever returning to a pristine state? And are you adding to our emissions at a time when every other sector of Irish society is being asked to tighten its carbon budget? So when we burn heather and gorse, how much greenhouse gases are we adding to the atmosphere? I asked the Department of Agriculture for the most up-to-date figures on the number of controlled burnings, never mind wildfires. They said, that's nothing to do with us. Ask the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. They're responsible for national parks and wildlife. So I asked the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage, but they said, that's nothing to do with us. That would be a matter for the Department of Agriculture. The reason that government departments shamelessly pass the book like this, it turns out, is that until now, nobody wanted to know the truth. To date, the emissions from wildfires in Ireland have been very much an approximation. And now we need to have more refined information about the fires and about the impacts of those fires. That's Dr Fiona Corkwell in UCC. She says we don't know what our emissions are because we've avoided asking the question. Under a changing climate, we might see warmer, drier summers. There was certainly a motivation to try and understand what the impacts of fire could be under those kind of summer weather conditions. Are we unusual in Ireland in not having more of this kind of data assembled already? Or is that just something that we would have in common with an awful lot of other northern and central European countries where wildfire isn't really something that features that prominently? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. For countries that don't have uh, a significant history and record of these kind of wildfire events, there's very little information available. So Ireland is no different to you know, other northern European countries, as you suggest there, but all countries uh, are now having to collate much more detailed information, particularly about the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with these fires. Dr Cockwell is now using satellite technology in a project funded by the EPA to calculate both how many fires there are and how much carbon dioxide they're generating. She doesn't have a national figure yet, but she can say that the fire in Killarney this spring generated the same amount of greenhouse gases as 12,300 cars would in a year of driving. And that's just one fire. There are 3,000 other fires, many being started deliberately. So knowing what we know now, what do we do with that information? Do we continue to burn seasonally to suppress future fire hazards, even though that emits the same amount of carbon emissions as the cars of a small town would annually? Or do we allow nature to take its course and to rewild the land and to actually absorb carbon? Everyone we have heard from so far in this programme is pretty dismissive of rewilding. The, the essential uh, ingredient for some of these rewilded spaces, if we are to go down that route, would be to remove people from the landscapes and remove the actions of people from the landscapes. In, by and large, that means exclusion of fire 
and the exclusion of fire itself is one of the key components for these larger catastrophic fires that we see. The fires in California, they're a completely different scale to what we have here, but they're the net result of fire exclusion in California landscapes for about 100 years. If there is just one ignition that's an, an accident or even a natural cause, there's a risk, a huge risk of losing all the ecosystem under this policy of rewilding. What do you say to the people who say you shouldn't be burning anything up here? In fact, you probably shouldn't even be farming up here. This should just be allowed to return to wilderness. I suppose I'd ask them, do they want us here at all? Like, like most, if you go back two generations or three generations, most people had some connection with the land and uh, each generation is getting that bit further away because of cities and work and urbanisation and all that. But I don't know, like, did they want to do away with the way of life that, was, that has been there for generations? Rewilding gets a bad press since the leader of the Green Party made it synonymous in the public mind with reintroducing wolves. Leave that bit out, though, and there are aspects to it that are worth considering. Very diverse. I see hazel, alder, birch. This is rowan or mountain ash. Mm -hmm. That's birch. Owen Dalton farms 73 acres of land on the Bearer Peninsula. About a third of it had rewilded more through neglect than design before he bought the farm. He left it as he found it, though, and what he has now is technically a rainforest. This is rainforest, in the sense that that oak, for example, is covered in polypity fern and lots of different types of mosses. And there's actually what looks like a buckler fern high up in the crook. Not to put too fine a point on it, there is no way anything here is going on fire. No, no, this this doesn't burn. Um, So Owen's little patch of wood is set in a wider landscape that would be at high risk of wildfire, but is itself never going to go up in flames. Essentially, even though it's a wood, it's a firebreak. Everything around it could burn, but it won't. For several years now, every spring, there seems to be a prolonged dry period where it just doesn't rain. All of the streams in the whole area dried up. The stream that comes into the woods dried up. In the forest, it was still flowing. And the reason for that is because natural forests, like this one, act as gigantic sponges. All of this vegetation, all of these mosses, the the very ground itself, it absorbs vast quantities of water and lets them out slowly. Throughout that drought, the stream carried on flowing. When you have just grasses on, on a mountainside, for example, the water isn't absorbed, so it runs off, it flashes off very, very quickly. And I see that here all the time. When it rains heavily, you get a, you get a huge big flood coming down off the mountain. This forest not only prevents flooding and also alleviates drought, but works as a fire break as well, were there to be a fire in the neighbouring area. Yeah, you're solving so many different problems in one go. And it's not, you know, I think the more that we understand about how our planet works, it all comes down to natural functioning ecosystems. 
and we can't go and plant, we can't produce natural ecosystems. The only way we can get them is to stand back and let nature do it. Some will look at a third of Owen's farm being left to go wild as an unproductive use of land. But in the context of biodiversity and climate crises that are feeding off each other, is a patch of land really unproductive if it interrupts wildfires, provides a sanctuary for otters and pollinators, and buffers against both flood and drought? It's beyond the scope of this programme to say if controlled burning or rewilding, or most likely a combination of the two, is the right answer. But it's a question that we have largely ignored until now, and is a big part of our hot mess. Hot Mess, an RTE original podcast, was written, produced and presented by me, Philip Boucher-Hayes. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from RTE on this topic, please rate and review this one wherever you have downloaded it. And thanks for listening.